You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. East of the Middle East, you take it on the go. So are there places that have better falafels than others? Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. One of the places that has the best is this place that in Hebrew is called Dal Kalariot, which means low-calorie falafel, which is an oxymoron. It's <laughs> no way that that's low-calorie. It is so fried in oil. Oh, my God. Yeah, but you could put it in a, you could fry it in a low, like a high-fat, low-calorie oil. I think it's just a fancy name. I don't think they really do much of anything to make it any. <laughs> I just say low, I think it's all... low in comparison to... So yeah, to the worst of the worst, I guess. So, um, do you have like, so there's chains here that have falafels now, like there's a falafel hut and a falafel corner. There's also like, um, these Greek places that are popping up that are, um, chain restaurants of like Greek food. And it's, it's sort of like, it's unfortunate because they even have like, um, uh, gyros that are, you know, you just look at the lamb and you're like that is not healthy that that thing's been put back in the freezer for like 18 days in a row it's not really going to produce a good quality it's not right you know what i mean do you have chains out there is it all like independent we actually have we have one chain that's like a big falafel slash shawarma do you know what shawarma is yeah so like, if you think that lamb is bad being put back in the freezer, you know, that, Ugh. that thing on that rack that's spinning around and then they take out, have you said, I don't know if they do it in America, but here they literally take out like a mini saw, like yeah. a hand saw or right? the electric one. And they go, and they run right down the side of the meat and it just falls out. And then they scoop it up from all the fat that dripped off and like put it into a pita. Ah, it's look, but I that's don't, how I don't they do it. it. That's how they do it in like uh, in the authentic way, right? Like if it's even oh, yeah. if it's a small place, they just take, but it's a super sharp knife, isn't it? Not a. No, it's literally here in this country. You know, those like, like the way that a bandsaw would look, you know, from when yeah. you did shop, you did shop, right? Everybody did shop, right? So instead of it being going up and down, it's literally just like a hand thing and they push the button and it goes, eh, it's like a saw going back and forth yeah, and then they just run knife. it. Yep. Oh, that's a carving knife. It's an electric carving knife. Yeah. We have one oh my for God. Thanksgiving. It only comes out once a year. Is that it? Oh, speaking of fried things, my brother-in-laws both made the fried turkey, which we had never had before, which is, oh my God. It's like shawarma on crack. But anyway, so they just run right down the thing and all the meat falls down and they just scoop it up and put it into a, a, a pizza and you can get it with everything, you know? But the, the big thing to get all that stuff with is harif, which means uh, the spicy sauce. Everybody likes the spicy in this country. What's in the spicy sauce? Is it like a ketchup base or like um, base or is it a... Uh, wait, it's going to come to me. Schug, it's called. I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't know if that's an English word, Hebrew word. It's like that. It's don't worry, listeners. No one else knows what that is either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone will, I'm sure, in the comment section below, tell me what schug is. But it's it's like a green. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not even going to try and say like I know. It's around. I know what it is. It's like not. It's not as bad as Rafi spice. You know, Rafi spice. Do you have like Rafi spice around your neighborhood? Like your son. 
Yeah. Like it's like my son, but they, it's like, I don't know if it's for pizzas or whatever. Anyway, skug is like a very popular thing. It's made out of, I think it's made of like basil, oregano. It's, I don't know, it's like, it's like got that greenish tint. Anyway, they make spicy is big and, and spicy is really big in this country. Like, especially on pizza. Cause the pizza really doesn't have any flavor. Kosher pizza doesn't have flavor. It's the weirdest thing. And so they give you like 18 different things to throw on top, like the spicy stuff and, and like the- Why would you even buy the jewelry on it? If you have to make it yourself, you're like, this is, I'm going to buy this <laughs> non-delicious thing and make sure it's delicious on my own. That's exactly what happened to me. The only time I ever ate liver. So I took a piece, like a literally, like just not like a ground up liver. I just took like a liver and ate it. And it was like, oh my God, that was the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten. It was cooked. It was cooked. No, it was cooked. And she goes- no, 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 you're not supposed to eat it like that. You got to put all this stuff on it. And I was like, wait a minute, I have to hide the taste of the liver by putting all this other stuff on it. Yeah, like, I think the worst is they do liver and onions as if the flavor of onions is going to make something else that's terrible. <laughs> Tastes better. better. Oh, onions, God. onions should never be one of the highlights of the dish. Have you ever had chulent? That's a big question now. Chulent? No. Chulent is this thing where I think, I think liver is related to chulent in that we as Jews would not, it's all, we were like the Indians of the, of the Europe, you know, and we would not throw anything away. So we would take all the giblets of everything that was left and throw it into a crock pot and like, just stew it and make it into a big nasty stew. And you'd throw in like potatoes and everyone's like, Oh, you got to put a beer in there. And it's like, it's disgusting. It's just, it's just goop. That's yeah, all it is. It says on Wikipedia that you have to cook it overnight in order to break down the sinews and tendons <laughs> in order for the meat to be edible. <laughs> it's like the cheapest man's turducken. You know what I mean? Like it's so bad, you know, that's so bad. Um, yeah, that's, that's like, a, and everyone who I've ever, whenever I've tried chilling, I'm like, it's okay. It's sorry. It's not, it's not horrible. Like they put barley in it and, then, and they always say to me, Oh, well that's cause you haven't had my chilling. I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? It's like you, you throw the giblets in better than somebody else. Give me a break. It That's always the terrible. line. It looks like the aftermath of, you know, when you eat or eat and drink too much or something. Oh, it's really, I've, I think I've had one good chillin in my entire life. And Why it, do people I continue just, to do it? Are you still like a shepherd's Tradition, tradition. Like we, I swear to God, we eat things just for no reason at all. That's just because what we eat on Shabbos is that's what we eat. That'd That's be a great future episode. Like, why do why do so many traditions feel like torture? <laughs> there you go. I feel like there that, you go. I mean, that is the modern uh, backlash to a lot of a lot of like modern postmodern weddings that I'm doing. It's all like I'll say. So, tell me about your ideas for the wedding. And the first four or five things they say are things they do not want to do. That's like that's what they that's how they start. They're like, they well, we're not going to do this, and we're not right. going to do that. Right. Right. As, and I don't, I, and at first I started taking it as like a personal offense, like, like, like everything think, that you do, we're like not going to do someone's going to do something. If you're guaranteed someone's going to do something wrong, you're going to tell them right away, don't do these things. But the rest of it you do is great. But um, that's the way to do it. Then I realized they're just like bucking the idea of like, like, uh, you know, the, one of the traditions is uh, the father gives the, you know, you ask who gives this bride to be right. married and it's a very antiquated model where it's like the the dad owns and the man owns the owns the the female and they have to give them away to another man who they entrust with their with their fair uh, their you know their fair maiden 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and, they, and, and women are totally helpless and hopeless without a man. It's like, yeah, I agree. Let's not do that part because yeah. I don't think that was ever true. And, you know, that's oh, not really good. The other one is the question, you know, who gives or, um, and, uh, you know, does anyone object to this marriage? I, I, I should look that up, but I've, I don't, I've never even heard of a marriage where anyone's actually objected to it. Like, where does that one come from? Oh, it comes from the movie, The Graduate, right? That's it, where he's banging on the top window. No, that's all I can imagine. Oh, you've never seen The Graduate? No. Big confessions. At least I saw Hamlet. Sorry, that was a, that was an inside joke for the people who didn't so listen last back. week. You'll have to listen to the last episode, everybody, <laughs> for the Hamlet musical. Oh, good times. Is Hamlet? No, that's Romeo and Juliet. I don't even remember what happens in Hamlet, actually. Hamlet, remember, he talks to the skull. That's why you know he like talks to the skull, and there's like all this, and then there's the, all this stuff like insinuating that he wants to be with his mother. It's very, it's very bad. It's not mm. good. Mm-hmm. And I think Mel Gibson did not do the best version of that. That's for sure. That's for sure. Of Hamlet? Yeah. He did a Hamlet production? He did. And they dyed his hair blonde. And I'm like, now there's your first mistake right there. You don't dye Mel Gibson's hair blonde. That's not a, you don't do that. And I think they even dyed his, his like beard blonde. It was like, it was really uncomfortable. Everything about that was not nice. I didn't like it at all. I think when I saw it, I was in like middle school and I came to my father and I was like, seriously, what's, what's going on with the, the mother son almost making out session. And he was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. That was weird. (laughs) He's like, that was a weird part of Hamlet. (laughs) That's about the best explanation I could get out of that. Enough said. Yeah. I feel like uh, everything that happened in Hamlet, I forgot after I took the test. Oh, at least you had a test on it. Right. My, I had, one, I had a teacher in, in, in high school who um, equated Macbeth, which is a great, I actually think Macbeth is great. That was the, one of the first plays I ever saw my father took me. And when he was describing Macbeth and how he had to, he just kept murdering and murdering and murdering to cover up his murder. He called it the potato chip theory, like how you just can't have one potato chip. Like it, you can't just take one out of the bag and eat it. So he's like, that's what the murders were. He couldn't just have one murder. He had to just keep murdering and murdering and murdering. And that's about what I remember about the, about the Macbeth story, truth be told. Now, was Macbeth Scottish or Vietnamese? Because they're both um, surnames. It's <laughs> a good question. I, I think he was more Scottish than Vietnamese, but um, don't, don't quote me on that. If my English teacher's listening, I apologize. Mm. I, I always wonder about McDonald's. Is McDonald's, although that's Mick, not Mac. McDowell's. That's really the one that we all have a big question mark about. I don't know what that is either. What? You've never seen Coming to America? Oh, yeah, yeah. We don't want to get sued, so we're not going to. Did you see the second one yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. I really am. I'm very excited to see it. Everyone everyone I've talked to has said uh, better than they would have expected. I don't know if that's a good rating or a bad rating. I'm not really sure. I think it's probably mostly the nostalgia of people like us who saw the original when it was uh, first released. And then it's all, isn't it all the same actors plus new actors who kind of would would naturally fit into that story? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Did you, um, do you watch any of the Cobra Kai? Oh yeah. We watched all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible, but great. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. Right. I I asked a friend of mine who was like really into it. He's like season three just came out. And I was like, okay, why are you watching this show? I watched two episodes and he was like, Oh, it's just nostalgia. And I was like, I don't have time for that. I don't have that kind of time in my life. 
And they know it because there's so many throwbacks that are just sort of like not, they're not moving the plot along. They're just sort of weird, like things that happen, but were things that happened in the original movies or characters and scenarios they bring back in as a new plot point. So and you're, if, you, if you're watching this for the first time, you go, what, why are they suddenly in Japan? That doesn't make sense. He could have just made that phone call. I've never like, heard of Okinawa. Karate Kid too. They went to Japan he dated this girl. Got it. And, and oh, and then there was that horrible storm. Did they have a storm? Was there a storm? Um, they got hit storm. by the typhoon. No, what That's happened all. was, though, the girl that he saved in the storm helps save Daniel's business. Oh, that's really weak. That is very weak. So basically he, he goes there. He could have made a phone call, but basically goes to Okinawa to try and save his business. And um, he runs into his arch nemesis, whatever that guy's name was. Who, Johnny? No, oh, no, the no, other guy. The, no, the other guy from the second one. Exactly. Did they actually get the actor to do it? Yeah, they got the actor. So it's all that, right? They get the same actor. You're oh. like, oh, that's him. And then, so his business is going under and he finds out there, no one can help him in Japan either. So he's about ready to leave. And because he does something, something happens where someone calls the girl that he saved from that pole in the storm in Karate Kid too. <laughs> You know and the that pole. girl happens to be the the vice. President. She wasn't a she wasn't a, a, a risky dancer. That's not the pole we're talking about. There was a telephone pole that yeah, almost okay. fell on someone, right? And that yeah, okay. So then she he why calls it. What happened? Why, why are you being apologetic for the Karate Kid two plot? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I think somebody somebody has to be no terrible. Um, anyway, so that girl winds up being VP of the only company that could possibly help Daniel's business stay open. And so it's, this it's, is all very, very believable. It's just like, you know, yeah, it's a uh, very, convenient. I, uh, I watched, like I said, I watched two episodes and the only thing I saw was exactly what you're talking about. And it was the only thing that I thought was even worthwhile was when he was, he was like being the parent at the uh, Halloween dance. And then yeah. the guy walks by wearing the, the skeleton outfit. And I was like, Oh, that was creative. Cause yeah, and they make that a was joke. like a nice throwback. They also make a throwback joke about um, how ridiculous it would be to wear a shower curtain. Oh, in that same episode? Yeah. Yeah, well, we all know. Oh, yes, that's right. I think he said something like, why don't you go as a shower curtain or a shower or something? Did he say that? Is that what he said? Yeah, maybe the wife does. Something like that. Yeah, it's definitely, that's the whole point of the show. And I'm like, I don't have that many hours in my life to give up. I mean, we're watching way too much Top Chef over here and Grey's Anatomy to be putting up with that stuff. And there was dead silence. <laughs> Wait, what show? We watch either Grey's Anatomy or Top Chef, that sort of stuff. It's really weak, but it's what we watch. Yeah. Schlocky stuff. What does schlocky mean? Uh, exactly what it sounds like. That's what most Yiddish is. It sounds exactly like what it is. It's like a piece of junk. It's schlock. Mm. You looking it up? <laughs> All right. Schlock rock is actually a band. You could look that up too. If you want to have a good time. It's very bad. It feels like, like, like the language just sort of like makes up words that sound. There's something to it. There's something to it. It's a combination of German and Hebrew. So you could, you definitely hear that going on there. Yiddish, right? I know like a handful of words. I am not a Yiddish speaker, so don't get excited. Anybody out there? Gotcha.
So what else? I don't know, man. Tell me what else is going on around your neck of the woods? Uh, not much. What did you, you wanted to talk about an article you found. Ah, yes. That's um, thank you for reminding me. It's, it's always good to have you around. Oh, um, oh. yeah, I was thinking, so it actually started, I found an article about it, but it's actually started with listening to, um, a couple things from a couple different comedians recently. Um, watched a Brian Regan stand up a couple of weeks ago and he, in it, he has a great bit about being OCD. And then, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. I mean, I've seen his stuff for some time. I, you know, I maybe wouldn't have guessed, wouldn't, would have guessed, wouldn't have guessed either way. I didn't, I didn't know that was coming. And um, we've talked a couple of times about Gary Goldman's the great depression, which is an excellent standup. If you haven't seen it, go stop right now and go watch it. Um, and then I was listening to uh, a different podcast called uh, The Good One, which is just about different stand-up comics and talking to this host. And, and Howie Mandel was the one on, and he was just talking about his career and just totally dropped as well that he is OCD. And I was like, okay, that's a lot of people who are now like, you know, and uh, a lot of people coming out talking about their own struggles and their own uh, paths. And we all know, obviously, Robin Williams and the tragic story and how that ended. And I was like, wow, that's an awful lot of comedians how do you think Robin struggle. Williams' life ended? Hold on. How do you think Robin Williams' life ended? I think, well, the, the best way I've ever heard it put was that just like when you have cancer, right? Um, you don't actually die of cancer. You die of heart failure or something like that, right? Something else finally is the, the cause of death. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody actually described it. Uh, the same way when it comes to depression, when somebody's struggling with depression, they lose their battle to depression, but it's not the depression that kills them. Something else is the final cause. I don't know exactly what happened to him. I mean, I don't know if you like researched this at all. Did you? So his wife um, issued a documentary film that was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but he was actually diagnosed with a rare brain disorder that was deteriorating his brain in ways that had him experience hallucin uh, hallucinations anyway yeah hallucinations had him him hallucinating uh major depression wrestling with all these other things and it's literally a a degenerative brain disease that essentially killed him and wait so he could have if he had been diagnosed with it they could have helped him and he wouldn't have been struggling with depression is that what it was they're not sure about that part um you know they were helping him in a number of ways, but it, it's, it was such a rare brain disorder that they, there was no cure for it essentially. All right. So yeah. So some people say, so that's why I asked because some people think he died. It was death by um, suicide from severe mm. depression. Um, you know, at post-mortem after he passed, they, they sort of were able to identify more about his in the um, autopsy, autopsy identify, right. identify more about the anatomy of what was going on with his brain and his um, neurologists were able to figure that out more. It's worth so, watching. And, and I wish more people would, I wish it were more, you know, widely distributed because um, I don't know. It's just, there's such a stigma around, someone taking their own life that I think a lot of people look down on him in some way. And they, first of all, they shouldn't. I think suicide's a, 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 a terminal end to, to a battle that, you know, we may never understand if we're not in that situation. Correct. So we've never looked down on, on someone who, who takes their life, but then also, you know, uh, he, it was a disease that killed him. 
Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's funny because what I was, the, the way that I heard it put almost is the exact same thing. I mean, it doesn't matter to me so much that it was a degenerative brain disease. He was struggling with a disease, right? Depression is that a disease. And it, I didn't, I didn't, I never actually heard the cause of death, but I knew that he was struggling with these things. And so for on, on the flip side, it, it sort of gives people the ability to, to talk about these things, which I think is very important. So I don't think it was necessarily a bad, and, and I agree with you 100%, no one should look down on anyone for, especially something uh, as um, uh, something that's in somebody's actual genes as is uh, depression, right? That's not something that anyone should ever be looked down upon. Um, but, but interestingly, in, in, in sort of thinking about these different people, um, I remember there was a movie called Punchline. I don't, did you ever see it? it was Tom Hanks and Sally Fields where they were stand-up comedians? Did you see? Did you ever see it? Awesome, awesome movie. Um, it's I think Sally Fields plays this uh, mother who you know just on her off nights goes into the city and and does you know like an open mic stand-up set, and she meets Tom Hanks who's really aspiring to make his way in in the world as a comedian, mm-hmm. and they there's a budding relationship of some sort. It's very, you know, it's, I got that tension of, you know, she's married, he's not, but it it really sort of tries, I think, to shine a light on the type of people that are stand-up comedians. Um, And, and so those sorts of things were always swirling around from that movie. I think it's a, I think it's from the late eighties, if I'm not mistaken. So the, so sort of the question for me was what attracts people to certain professions or hobbies um, and is it something which is sort of who we are, what's in our brain and what we need, or is it, you know, or, or are we just seeing a sliver of what is the normal population, right? That there, there, we have a, a certain number of people in the world and there's a certain percentage of those people who are depressed or struggling with OCD, you know, those sorts of things are, are all part of the, the world out there, or are we seeing a higher percentage you know, of those people in this concentrated into this one profession? Those are sort of my questions. I don't know. Thoughts? But do you think that people with, what's your thesis? My thesis is, I think that there is something um, driving people who, who have a need to, you know, need is probably a strong word, but who strongly desire to be up on stage and telling jokes about making people laugh. Sometimes I think it's about trying to sort of solve a uh, something that's lacking in themselves. Maybe, you know, I'm not really sure if I have a, a fully formed thesis, but I think that something in those people is driving them to do that work that they're doing. And I think that you could say the same thing about our profession. You could say the, for sure, you can say these things about surfing, right? There are people who surf big waves and and their brains have been analyzed, right? And they have, they have, they have a need for a certain spike of adrenaline in their life. And I might be one of those people as well, you know? So like what, what motivates us to do the things that we do? But you're asking how it, how it relates to um, psychological disorders. Yeah. 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 Meaning I'm sure that you would not see the percentages over a certain number, right? It wouldn't be like you'd see 99% of the people who do stand up have struggle with mental illness or something like that. 
but I, I'm, you know, this is, I was going to say, I'm sure you could see up into the nineties of everybody who is doing stand up comedy probably has, you know, is going to therapy, but I bet you that's up in the 90 percentile of most people in the world or, you know, who spend some time in their life in therapy. So it's not a good example, but, but yeah, what, what do we think? Do we think that, um, something in us drives us to do the work that we do or drives us to do the hobbies that we do? Um, or we, like I said, are we just seeing a sliver of what's normal? There's a normal amount of people out there that struggle with X, X, and X. And that's what you're seeing in the, in the comedy world. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure I know. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if we would say that, um, it's not a total coincidence that this many people who have made it as far as they have, by the way, we're talking about Howie Mandel, Brian Regan has a huge following. Um, Gary Goldman is getting somewhere in his career, right? But Robin Williams had, he, even though it might've been caused by a degenerative brain disease, you know, he, he also struggled with depression, right? We, the, all these things are sort of swirling around that. And, and, uh, it's not for better or for worse. You know what I mean? Like these things need to have a light shown upon them. Right. As I said, like there's a real benefit in people being able to talk about these things. So I'm always thankful when comedians um, or any other people who are in a place of prominence, whether it be professional surfers, right. When, when people talk about these things, I think it's a really good thing because it helps people come out of their shell and be able to talk about what they struggle with. Um, Yeah. And maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe you're right. Cause it's like, you just have a small slice of comedians who are um, suffering from, from those mental disorders. So is that, you know, let's say it's 7%, is that the same percentage as exists in the typical population? Or is it like 80% of stand-up comedians have, you know, diagnosed severe clinical depression, anxiety disorders, that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, yeah, and I think it's almost it's it's you always wonder how much of it is. Um, there is something about comedy where many of us who do it focus on the the laughter is the drug, right? The response to our work, so our, the work in itself is not the uh, end goal or the reward. Um, it is the laughter, and so some people just keep you know, trying to hit that feeder bar. And it's, it's always a crapshoot on whether it's going to work or not. You know, some jokes will work timelessly, but that's rare. A lot of times it's based on the audience, the night, the times, and you have to keep, you know, creating new ones and being relevant and fresh and adapting. You can't keep telling the same joke for 10 years and expecting people to laugh if they've already heard it, you know? So I think people keep coming to that drug, definitely have a need for something that they're, they're going to the wrong source. Um, But I think a lot of people in their, you know, I think in any career that has an application to it where you can go to the source, uh, you can go to the wrong place to try and have your needs met. You know, you got to find a way to be fulfilled by just doing the work, putting in the effort, taking the time and not in the response, the pay, the rewards for it. Um, Cause I think that'll often lead to a number of, of challenges. I don't know. How, how did you feel when you, I really feel like the way, what you just said was spot on that um, 
And there might be a connection again to like the surfing and the adrenaline aspect. But I do, I do feel like the laughter that I remember getting when, when I was on stage, the times that I did it in college and it wasn't so extensive, but the laughter that you get is 100% addictive, right? Like it's, it's a total high, right? You feel like, um, you hit it like the way that I, I, I assume I am not a baseball player that I, that people feel when they get a home run, right? Like they feel like they knocked it out of the park. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, you sort of, I could easily see this desire need to go back to it. You know what I mean? And, and, and feel like it's something that, uh, draws you in, in that way. Um, and that's why it amazes me that when I, when I hear people talk about stories, like where they completely bombed and they just let it go and they just let it happen. You know what I mean? Like, how could you, like, for me, it would be like, well, the whole reason I got up on stage here to, to talk to the crowd, to do what I'm doing is to get that, that adrenaline high, you know what I mean? To get that laughter, um, and feel like I achieved what I was trying to achieve. Whereas on the flip side, just letting it bomb, you know, it has something to do, I think with, you know, sort of saying, I know what's funny. And I think, and whatever I'm thinking right now is funny, even if you're not getting it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And or, yeah, I mean, being able to remove yourself and your self-worth from the outcome that you don't really have as much control over as you thought is definitely key in that. I mean, you hear comedians make jokes about their jokes not working um, or having, you know, a lot of them have a, a backup, like a line, you know, that they keep in the back of their head. And they say something like, okay, when a joke bombs, this is what I'm going to say. They prepare. Like and I found 20 bucks, right? That, that kind of, that kind of thing in your back pocket, you know about that one, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a, a distraction more than a, you know, even just saying, you know, boy, that bombed, you know, addressing directly <laughs> head on, th- this is what happened. Not, not a distraction or a, you know, right. sending people in another direction. Um or make, you know, cause that's, it's almost like an awkward, it makes it more awkward rather than just being like, boy, that bombed is a way to kind of make people laugh at the fact that you noticed, like you tried something, it didn't work. Some people, right. the, the awkwardness of it is you, your goal was to get it to work. It didn't work. Everybody notices that and feels bad for you, but you're not commenting on it when the moment you comment <laughs> right. on it, that you realized, you know, exactly what happened. You know, that's the thing behind the thing, right? The joke isn't what's being presented it's this idea that i can make you laugh by saying words together and so when when people comment on that and don't you know and the goal is to really just have an experience with people when you comment on that it becomes more um i don't know i think people laugh at it and then they don't get so wrapped up in it it's i mean and and again it's applicable to beyond stand-up comedy where you know any any public role in essence where we can, you know, make a commentary about when we failed or when we screwed up without being overwhelmingly sad or depressed by it or thinking that it has an application to our self-worth, we're going to get farther and people notice and they're like, Oh, he's trying. He's just another human. But, you know, (laughs) I get people who comment on sermons tanking or things they didn't like, or, you know, and, and I often feel a great sense of guilt or shame, but when I'm like, Oh, well, wasn't for you today you know, it's like, yeah, that's true. You can't please all the people all the time. And it's when I forget, right. that. uh, when I forget that, that, uh, for sure, it becomes a personal attack more than, a. I didn't like that. You know, Rob Bell, one of the guys I listen to often, um, 
he he has this he's very good at not not internalizing this i think part of it was that he had a uh, a kind of breakdown that he's very visible he was very vocal about um but he'll often tell people who have like really negative commentaries he'll often ask clarifying questions um you know so he tells a story about a book he wrote and someone wrote this really scathing review online and he said oh are you have you ever been interested in um Christianity before uh, and the person answers and he's like have you ever had questions about um whether this is true or not true blah 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 so he had all these questions and right. the guy said basically no 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 and then Rob said oh well then the book wasn't for you <laughs> and the guy got really <laughs> offended the guy got super offended that the book wasn't and I think that's just it I think you know, people often want everything to be for them and the world to be catered for them. I mean, that's often the sermon response is, well, I didn't like it. It's like, well, I was preaching God's word to people who want, who needed to hear it. Maybe it wasn't for you. Like I can't, <laughs> I'm not preaching to 7 billion people or 2 billion people. I'm, I'm preaching. Maybe sometimes God has things to say that you don't want to hear. Could yeah, that be? <laughs> exactly. Or maybe you're too defensive. Yeah. And it was, it was the challenge you needed, but it's like, it's true. Not everything's for you. And it's this, it's not as much a deflection or safety as it is, you know, very accurate realization of what's really going on, you know, and internalizing that gets hard. Same thing, you know, I think beyond the public realm, I think a lot of people have jobs that aren't um, in the public role where they're presenting to a public or they're, you know, some people are doing like financial analysts or, or um, you know, work on homes, that kind of stuff. So I think I think to, uh, the tough part of what you're saying is, is how do we apply the idea that people with mental disorders, how, how, how are they wrapped up in what careers they're looking for and seeking? You know, maybe they just want jobs where they're not seen or noticed or um, have any public, public accountability for, and they, they could be really great, you know, singers, preachers, comedians, public roles, but they have crippling anxiety. So they don't want to think about um, Adele. Did you ever hear the stories of how, how uh, Adele's crippling stage fright? I don't think I've ever heard it in specific. Tell me more. Yeah, Adele talked about, and I'm I'm just going to speak it in vague ways because I don't remember it completely, but she talked about having, you know, immense stage, you know, anxiety on of being on stage and how, you know, people often say, well, why do you just stand still the whole time? It's she literally physically cannot move because she's so terrified about being on stage wow. in front of all these people. But Did her, she like overcome it? Did she get better with it? Or was she still like standing still? Like I said, she still just stands still, I think, and focuses wow. on her voice. And the, but she's, her voice is one of the, one of the best that, you know, I've ever heard. And she hits a range, a range beyond what most trained vocalists can even get to. So, um, you know, it, it's hard because we demand so many other sensibilities from people that they're not interested in. And it, that's, I think that's oftentimes what leads to the anxiety and depression and issues. Sure. If they're not physiologically based, you know, based in hormones and biochemicals, you know, I think if it's based in what, what you do and how you do it, I think a lot of people, it's like, I want to be a carpenter. Okay. You got, you also got to do sales and paperwork. And they're like, Holy shit, I don't want to do that. And that's where, it, right. you know, that's where they get depressed. Cause they're not making the sales. They can't do they can't talk with people or seal the deal or they're giving away right. products because they feel bad for families, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, it's funny because there was this, um, there was this moment where I was studying in New York um, and we had a presenter. She came to speak to us about 
you know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was in our practical rabbinics class. And so it was something psychology based and she it had nothing to do with the presentation. And she goes, oh, cause you know, I'm sure as you all know, like, I mean, who has time to have dinner together with their children? Mm-hmm. And like, I think most of the people in the class were kind of like, just going to let it, the, let it slide. And one person said, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I had dinner with my parents every night. You need help. And, yeah. goes, and, and the woman goes, Oh, come on. Like you're a rarity. I mean, how many other people in this room had dinner with their parents every night? And almost 99% of the people in the room raised their hand. And the woman was like, it looked like she had another dissertation. It was like, we, you know, she was turning the wheels to figure out another dissertation. Cause I was like, that is an amazing statistic that almost everyone in the room who is studying to be a rabbi, like ate dinner with their parents. You know what I mean? And this has nothing to do obviously with our genealogy and, and the things that we get from our parents. Cause depression is, you know, but don't you uh, not- think that's like the, the phrase misery loves company, like people who have these issues often want to pull others down and, and sort of normalize it and, and air yeah. it out. Yeah. And you're like, you know, you don't have to, and it's almost like they don't know how to get out of this situation. And so they're kind of pulling others down with them when you're like, you know, you can operate in a healthier way. Like I, sure. someone posted about how, how awful it was that people always demand she meet that she meet with them. And um, you know, she's busy and she has to change her schedule around and I said, one thing I do is I just put my schedule on a public signup uh, website and anybody who asks for my time, I say, oh, go check out this website and you know, here's the times I'm available. And when they complain, I just say, well, that's when I have available. So you know, you know, and you, once people are drawn to that, I've never pulled to, to getting t- you know, time away from my family or time that right. I'm compromising for that I already set aside for sermon writing and prep or for the podcast. Like, I know I'm not going to get pulled away from those things and they're a priority. So I'm never complaining, but this woman doesn't know how to do it and doesn't have healthy, I mean, doesn't have healthy boundaries. And so it's better. I think people just don't have a sense of like, it's harder to create healthy boundaries, but healthy. For sure. For I sure. No, what I, what I also found interesting though, was, is that I, I didn't know at the time when she was saying this, like I knew that I was, you know, I grew up having dinner with my parents every night. I didn't, I didn't think I was the norm or not the norm. You know what I mean? Like I felt like that's what happened with me. And then I sort of thought, well, that must be the norm. Then she said this and I went, oh, maybe that's not, maybe I'm out of the ordinary. And then everyone was like, no, we also ate dinner with our parents. And I was like, okay, I'm lost now. What's the norm again? Like I was totally lost. But but the truth of the matter is, it's like, I, I also walked away from that experience wondering, wait a minute, do people who go into spiritual leadership, right, to be a rabbi, a pastor, whatever it be, were they raised in a certain, a certain environment, which was con- more conducive to that, right? Were they sort of, ha- did they have healthier relationships with their parents or did they not have healthier relationships with their parents? I thought if I looked, if I flipped the, the, the screen back to comedians, I bet you I would find more did not have positive relationships with their parents. And there was something that maybe go, you know, you can make the, the case that something was going on there. I don't know. I'm just saying like, there's, I think all of these things are wrapped into who we are and what we do. Sure. Well, and I think people need to, people who are training people for various fields are, um, they need to normalize or they need to at least kick out the crap and like, you know, you don't like tell people you don't need to do that. You don't, that's not the way it has to be. If you're going to be a cop, you don't have to X, Y, and Z. Right. Like I think there's a lot of stigma that goes around people like, Oh, I'm going to be, and people are before they even get into careers 
are already complaining about the problems they're going to have to endure that are right. that are fixable. You just got to, you know, figure out how to operate in a different way of life. No, so for I think sure. there's a, that's a, I mean, that's a big one. And I think, you know, as people are, uh, I don't know, how do we find help for those things that we struggle with in our careers and actually apply energy to fixing them rather than just endure them. Um, yeah. And I often wonder how, you know, how much would be fixed if um, overworking in general weren't a, weren't a norm or expectation, especially in For Western sure. culture. Is Israel considered a Western or an Eastern? I think we're probably more considered Eastern, to be honest. I, I find that, um, I mean, one of the things I think of when I think of like the differences between America and Israel um, is that I forget the percentage, but it's a very large percentage of all Israelis, all Israelis, the majority of Israelis spend most of their paycheck on the food for their family. And that doesn't, it's not a reflection of how much money we make or don't make. It's, it's just where the priorities nasty are. stew as a tradition. <laughs> no, man, that should, that should feed you for a whole week, I guess is what they think. But they, you know, like you, you had like a chicken and then whatever's left of it, you go, eh, let's just throw it in the pot. So the, um, but no, I think, I think that, you know, that is a reflection of where our priorities, like when I think about, um, uh, the differences in cars, right? Not only are cars uh, much smaller in size here, do they tend to be, right? They, I don't even think, you know, to, to get an SUV, it's almost like a full step up. It's as, almost as if you were driving a Jaguar in this country, not to mention, you know, gas is so expensive. Why would you have a gas guzzler? But um, one of the things I always notice is that there are almost all the cars I see on the street have some form of a dent or a scratch in them. And it's not a small one and it's not fixed. Like it's not a goal, like it's not a priority for us to fix our cars when there's a, when there's damage done to it. And I can, I can almost always remember the people who have been in my sort of social sphere in America. Like the moment a dent happens on your car, it's fixed. It's gotta be fixed. Take it to the shop, get it fixed. And and I'm like, I think that the priority when it comes to a car for us is more of an A to B, just, you know, get us from here to there. Not, it's not a reflection of you know, who I am and my social status. And it's none of that. It's just this thing gets me and fits all my children and fits my luggage and, or whatever. And that's it. That's all it is. It's a box. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, all those things that get sort of those expectations where it's like, no, you can live with a dent in your car. You can get by with that. For sure. Interesting. What so no, but I do. I do think that we. I do think that this this culture tries more to not focus and drive people to work as much as they do. I also think that again, I might just be guessing here, but I also think that that's sort of the national institutionalized holidays, right? That sort of force us to have time where we're not in work. Now, again, I, this is might be a little bit of a stretch, but but I feel like the entire culture sort of revolves around that Fridays you're sort of preparing for Shabbat and then Saturday is Shabbat. And like, right. So there's, I don't feel like people are bringing their work to their, you know, Saturdays or their Fridays as much. And you know what I mean? It's like, there is a, there is a point where it stops almost every week. Sure. Yeah. And there's that built-in pressure release valve. It's like, you literally cannot do these things on those days. It's, um, 
Yeah, and to bring it back to mental health, I mean, I think that's that probably plays in. I mean, of course, all Jews are crazy, and we use chicken soup as our as our penicillin. We know it, or what you know, as our, as our Ritalin and all those other things. Those are always the jokes. But no, but in truth be told, I do think that 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 encourages a, a healthier lifestyle. It encourages a lifestyle, you know, built built around family and um, having those boundaries that you were talking about. All those th- things are part of, uh, I think, what this culture is trying to achieve. Now, how good are um, how good is is the Jewish institution at recognizing and supporting uh, people with mental health? Problems? So that that is a good question. It's actually a very good question, and I would say that I'm going to break it down in two different ways. Number one, I think that traditionally speaking, the Orthodox world, no pun intended, has not been great about recognizing and dealing with mental illness. Um, But I do think in the past 10 years, they've come a long way. A lot of people, one of my teachers, um, when I was studying in New York, uh, wrote an amazing piece on his his battle with depression um, when he was uh, studying in yeshiva, when he was, I think, just out of high school and how he's, you know, he takes medication and, and that sort of opened up if, at least for the the liberal Orthodox world, a, a good avenue to start having conversations about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it is becoming much more regular to talk about. I will then flip and say here in Israel, um, I f- I'm not just, I'm saying I feel we are way behind when it comes to these sorts of things. They still have a lot of stigma to them. Um, people are not as reticent to come out or are reticent to come out and talk about those sorts of things. Um, it is not something that is viewed as, as it should be. Um, like we said, like uh, to have, to, to battle depression, manic depression, any of those things is, is, is a genetic issue that when handled with medication shouldn't be something that anybody even thinks about again, right? Even if you hear it, like it should sort of be a blip on the screen, like, oh, so he takes heart medication and she takes medication for, you know, manic depression is what's the difference. You know what I mean? Um, but it's not that way yet in Israel. And I think it, and we've got a long way to go, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Our, um, the ELCA does well with, with some social statements on mental in illnesses um, and talking about the body of Christ, um, raising awareness to the challenges. I think congregationally it's, diff- it goes, you know, church by church. Um you know, and how sensitive the, um, the leaders and members are to mental illness. You know, if someone came to the door and had some challenges or even, you know, was a part of the congregation for a while and then identity, identified that, it's tough, you know, and it's a tough line to walk because some mental illnesses do come with um, behavior patterns that are troubling to any, you know, public setting. Um, and so how do you do that? I think the just the raising awareness, I think in general, that religion can impact is that mental illness is not always a controllable emotional um, issue. A lot of it is a cocktail of, um, like you said, um, family of origin issues that are deeply rooted in, in, um, in the brain. Um, It's physiological, it's, it's hormones and, uh, dopamine and serotonin release um, that is, you know, regulated by various organs in our body that we don't even consider. How do we keep healthy? Things like the go- liver and gallbladder have a ton of ton of control over our mental health and wellness, but we don't 
care about the liver or gallbladder here until there's a problem, until they're broken, right? And right. we're not taking supplements to really give our give our liver the best shot at clearing out toxins. So then those toxins affect how our liver is releasing uh, certain hormones or affecting the release of hormones from other organs. And then we're not, you know, we're not able to cope with the normal day-to-day use stress that we get. We, we just, you know, the same things, you know, on a Tuesday that happen on a Wednesday are way worse for some reason. And it all has to do sometimes with just how our bodies are functioning. So we're not treating the root causes in a way to really give ourselves the best possible setup to be mentally healthy and well, or to have our bodies get back to a norm. You know, I think our body can heal ourselves through a lot of things, or at least give ourselves the best possible setting so that then we can look into things like therapy and emotional coping that are going to help on the situations and the family of origin stuff. But I think a lot of people have this stigma that like, if you have a mental disorder, Oh, just fix it. Just get better. Just think differently. Like, well, it's like, um, it's like that Simpsons episode where he said, smoke yourself thin and get confident, stupid. Right. Those are my, those are the, (laughs) that's exactly what it's like. No, it's, you're absolutely right. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it should not be looked at. And one of the things I think, which is, is so powerful in the, in the situation, in the sort of place that you sit is that if you create a community the right way, it can be a place where people can be vulnerable and, and can be open about these sorts of things. And it's not a place where, like you said, it's not, it shouldn't be, oh, well, let's sweep this under the rug. It's a little uncomfortable. Let's just get rid of it right now. It's a place where people can be who they are with all their faults and all their you know positives and negatives, and they can be accepted for who they are. And, and the community can sort of help people along in that journey that they're going through. Sure. Yeah. And that's the, again, it's, it's like a, they, they apply one solution to every problem and they're just dumbing down the symptoms, not treating kind of the root causes. They'll give you things like Prozac, Ritalin, um, combined with therapy, but then you, you're, you're, you're not meant as mentally fit to really get into the therapy and go deep enough. And again, I think we're both poorly un- unequipped to, make these presumptions I, you know, I often avoid kind of commenting on mental health because I have no idea what's going on in people's lives who have this, um, that's, you know, predominant and affects their daily life. For sure. Um, but what's a, but I mean, also you're, you're again, situated in a place where you're like a first responder. Like it's, it, I, what we learned in, 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 and I said, I haven't headed up a community, but what we learned in our practical rabbinics is that like, people are going to come to you. They're going to open up to you probably first. And then your job is to sort of assess in a very you know quick way of like, okay, what's best for this person, right? Do they, is it something where somebody just needs to have a conversation every now and again with a spiritual leader, or is this something where somebody needs to actually see a professional and you're sort of that, that, uh, pipeline to what people need, which is a, it's an yeah, amazing place to sit. I think you've grossly uh, overestimated my role in that whole situation, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I've always ago, grossly overestimated you, Ralph. Don't worry about it. 15 years ago or more. Yes. I think the, you know, churches and pastors were the, the start of a pipeline to get, you know, get people help. And now people realize, and I realize there are much better suited and trained folks than, than I. So I often, I may have said this on the show before, but 
I often call myself the Jiffy Lube of counseling. Like if you know you need an oil change, you come on in, you say, hey, we've got this marital problem and we want to be prayerful about how to address it. And I say, okay, let's, let's, let's talk this through. I'll come up with scripture and pray with you and give you some ideas moving forward. But if you need an, a transmission overhaul or you have no idea what's going on and you come to the office and you say, well, my wife and I got this noise when we walk. There's a, she, she growls every time I don't take out the garbage. I'm like, I have no, I can't help you. And anytime I pretend and try, I'm doing more harm than good. You know what I mean? For sure. No, no, no. That's what I meant by the pipeline. It was like, your people might come to you first because they feel more comfortable with you first, but your job is almost to like completely shove them in the pipe and go, okay, there's somebody who can help you with this. I'm not the guy. You know what I mean? But like, that's, that's an amazing place to be. You can help people find their way to the thing that they need to help them. You know, that's, that's, it's so humbling the conversation that happens though, because people are like, you're the person I know and trust because I've been to this congregation for this many years. And now I'm having depression and I want you to fix it. And my first <laughs> response, my first response is sort of like, uh, let me, let me introduce you to someone you never met. You know, it's like, it's- <laughs> like I'm not the guy, definitely not. You know, that's, that's very interesting. And I'm, I'm sure they didn't say the words fix it, but I'm sure you feel like they want you to fix it. And that's not an easy position to be in. I've, I mean, the, I've, I've told colleagues and friends and I've told them, I don't think, I don't, think you should be doing that. I don't think you should be give offering that form of counseling and they get offended. Unless they have the, unless they have the training, but most well, do but not. That's right? exactly. I'll ask something like, have you had advanced training since our seminary class? And they'll say no. And I'll say, you mean the one seminary class that, you know, we, <laughs> we did, we watched videos three out of four days. Get confidence, stupid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, it was a fine class, but we didn't do like didactic practices. We didn't have thousands of hours of, um, counseling practice the way that counselors need to, to, to get educated. We didn't sure. have a supervisor watching us and commenting on how we did these things. So we're all just making it up based on the no. textbook we read. For sure. No, bullshit I, I, if we think we're going to help someone with serious life affecting issues, right? Now this could, but right. This actually leads into probably a whole nother episode, which is how much does the person at the helm think that they can fix everything and how much of a, are they delusional about what they can actually do? Right. And, and you're, and like, like we've, I think we've spoken about before, like what's a relationship, a good relationship therapist is supposed to say, I'm not here to fix this relationship. It's either going to fix itself through the process of what we do, or it's going to fall apart. Right. And it, and this saving people complex is a very dangerous thing when you have, when you're leading a community, if you don't, if you can't have yourself in check and sort of say, wait a minute, I, I can help to a limited, you know, capacity, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not a therapist. Yeah. And most therapists, most trained therapists who have their own baggage in check will say, it's not about me. You've got to put in the work. I'm just, you know, right. trying to clarify, you know, help you clarify where you're headed and what's really going on. All right, yeah, man. And then, and then the availability of therapy is the other thing. I think it's just, it's grossly unapproachable system where you have to call <laughs> someone who you've never met before, set up an appointment, go to a static office, sit down in a waiting room. Um, when really people who are having, you know, gross mental health issues, don't want to go, don't want to Google search therapists, don't want to meet somebody new, don't have crippling anxiety about going to a waiting room and all that stuff, you know, waiting for anyone heightens all of that depression, anxiety, sure. self, um, self-doubt and loathing. So it's just, they, and there's some new companies that are actually doing online stuff. I'm not sure if that's any better or worse because I haven't experienced it, but um, 
you know, it's happening. I think they're trying to make it more accessible. COVID kind of amplified that and forced it into necessity, but Mm -hmm. now people are realizing it's more uh, accessible that way. And you, uh, you reminded me of, uh, uh, to bring it full circle, Brian Regan has a great bit when he was ta- in his, one of his last standup where he talked about how, um, why have doctors never updated their filling, you know, the way you fill out their forms. Like he's like, I did this last year. And then they're like, take the clipboard, fill out the 12 paid packet and don't come up here until you've done, you're finished. And like, and he's like, so then I'm going to fill out this 12 page packet, which you have all this information of already. And then you want to take my blood pressure. Like, it's like, you, like that's exactly, I, I definitely feel there's a lot of anxiety that goes into sort of finding a therapist, even finding a doctor and all those things. And, and I'm sure, as you said, there, there's got to be ways that we can do this in a, in a better way. The joke I told at the last standup I did was um, filling out the form I had to fill, or the nurse was asking me all these questions. And as if she was filling out the form and she was, she said, which one of these four body types do you, would you say you are? And it was like, um, you know, slim, not really, uh, uh, muscular, you know, I'd like to think so. Um, obese, obviously not. And then, and then she's like, okay, we'll just check other. And what would you write in here? And so I give all these options for what I'd write in. And basically she was and the, the, the butt of the joke was, oh, I got it. You know, those, uh, inflatables they put outside of car uh, car sales places. And then I do the bit where it's like those, you know, those tall skinny guys arms. Yep, their arms. Yep. And then I do that on stage and it kills. It absolutely kills because I do it. I, it it's just, it is, that's my body type. That's and then awesome. The, the better part is the callback at the end, at the very end of the show. Um, I do that as like my kind of closing, you know, to close out the last joke. And then I say, thank you everybody. And it's that's, nice. That's a lot of fun. That's anyway. All right, man. Well, good, good chat. Appreciate the topic. All right, man. Never. It's, it's always good. It's always good to hash these things out. Well, listen, guys, I'm just going to say a little disclaimer. Obviously, we've said this before on the show, but like if anybody really is feeling like they need to talk to somebody, it is very important to get out there and find somebody to talk to, especially if you're having a really hard time. So don't hesitate to, um, you know, find those resources when you need them. True. All right, everybody. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. All the best, everybody.